Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my podcast YouTube videos on GaudiumAtSpace22.com. Thanks to all my listeners. Been a lot of interviews coming at you lately, and there will be a lot more in the next coming weeks. I'm catching up for lost time. Having traveled so much over the past six months, I haven't had much time for this. So I'm kind of reveling in it. I'm getting a new camera soon, I hope, and upgraded Internet. Uh, And so these these interviews will continue. And today I have a repeat guest very excited. Uh, Dr. Lewis Ayers. Dr. Ayers teaches at the University of Durham in the UK, and he teaches Catholic and historical theology in the Department of Theology and Religion. Did I get that right? I hope I did. Sounded good. uh, Okay. Yeah, it sounds good. Okay. I have to mute my phone here, lest all kinds of dinging take place. Um, All right. Very good. Well, we're going to talk, both uh, Dr. Ayers and I, attended a conference in Rochester, Minnesota in early November, November 5th to the 8th. It was uh, sponsored by Word on Fire, Bishop Barron's organization. And it was uh, a conference dedicated to the launching of a new journal sponsored by Word on Fire called The New Ressourcement, uh, Ressourcement Theology. And to that end, there were a bunch of uh, selected scholars there. I was happily one of them, although I hesitate to describe myself as a scholar these days. A uh, scholar gone to seed is what I like to describe <laughs> myself. <laughs> you know, a scholar who now is unhinged and unmoored from academic protocols who can now just sling it from the hip, do what he wants. But anyway, uh, Bishop Barron seems to like me for some stupid reason. And so I was at the conference amidst a bunch of theological giants. Among them was Dr. Ayers. And at the end of that conference, he and I hit upon the genius idea that we should get together and have a discussion of just what the heck is the new resource month theology. There was a lot of talk about resource month theology in Rochester, a lot of talk about what direction it should go, but um, I didn't really get a, a sense of what, what's new about it. So maybe you could begin with that, that open-ended question, Lewis. Is there something new in the new resource month? And if it is, what is it? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me on again, Larry. It was a it was a fun conference. It was uh, good to see you in person after a few years. Yeah, it was a really interesting set of people. Um, and it made me think quite a bit about what we might might mean by a new race or small. Um, now, everyone was pretty clear. Uh, and Bishop Barron himself made this clear at the beginning that times have changed. We're not in the old resource more. Um, and I think one thing we might do is tease out what the differences are. And then yeah. another thing that we might tease out is what was spoken about at that meeting and what wasn't spoken about at that meeting, because that's Very also preoccupied me for two or three weeks. Um, and I think there is the simple reality that, you know, we can have a new resource mob. But if you think about the stature of the figures who were involved in the French Ressourcement of the mid 20th century, de Lubac, Yves Congar, um, Anders von Balthasar, if you think of him as a Ressourcement person, uh, Jean Danielou, these are some of the towering figures of 20th century theology. Well, I, I would uh, include a, Guardini, Bouillet. Guardini, Bouillet, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, there's, a, there's, a, there's a set of figures, all of whom are significant intellectuals and you know constantly worth reading and then there's a bunch of us in a hotel in rochester and i'm looking (laughs) around the room saying there are some people here who are a lot smarter than me um but 
in some sense, we're nothing compared to that that generation. And how you know how does that affect the task that we have before us? Um, so, I mean, the first thing, and it's what's what's new mm. about it. Um, well, obviously, there's a different cultural world. There's a there's a relativism relativism in the air culturally that those figures in the mid 20th century could rarely imagine um yeah i think that's that's one of the two significant differences and the other is there's a fragmentation and a a, a chaos in the theological world that none of them could imagine um they were all pretty clear what they were reacting against and in retrospect perhaps they reacted too strongly against some of it um and it's very easy to present the story of the first half of the 20th century in terms of neo-Thomism versus the resourcement guys in their different forms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the realities of our day is that I think the resourcement guys, like you and me, um, have to make common cause with the Thomists because at least we believe in something. Um, right. <laughs> So yeah. there's a radical cultural difference and there's a radical theological difference. We're, we're trying to go back to the sources in the light of theological and cultural fragmentation after the council. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, if Gary Gould Lagrange were still alive and, you know, and I ran into him at a conference, I would say, hey, dude, let's sit down and have coffee and talk about this synod on synodality stuff. And you'd and agree. <laughs> and we would agree on almost 99 percent. of. So, yeah. Yeah. There's been a shift. Yeah. All right. There's been a shift. Yeah. And that's really interesting. Now, that's partly because I think Thomism has changed. Um, and, you know, there is what is now sometimes called resourcement Thomism um, associated with a host of Dominicans and Matt Levering and, and those sorts of people. And that's a sort of vital conversation partner. I, you know, um, next term, next semester, I'm teaching at the Angelicum. Could you imagine that in 1945? <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but now we can make common cause and we should. I, I would add one other thing that is new yeah. to this, uh, and it is the product of Vatican II and Resource Month thought, mm. is, is that the, the absolute explosion of lay theologians would have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I do a regular um, master's doctoral course on 20th century Catholic theology and I'm doing it this semester and I always make Vatican II the center point. And I ask the students how many lay uh, experts, periti, were there at Vatican II? Like, and they all think, oh, well, maybe it's, you know, 10% or something. And they're all universally surprised when I say zero. Zero. <laughs> zero. How could there have been? I don't want to get too far off track, but I was reading Joseph Pieper's memoirs. And he talked about how when he came uh, to the United States to teach, uh, how very surprised he was to find in, in like the 1940s, 50s, whatever, how very few Catholic universities actually had departments of theology and that yeah. almost all theology in the United States was taught in seminaries and almost all of yeah. it was taught by clerics in seminaries. Uh, yeah, and yeah. so what a revolutionary change has happened. Anyway, that's that's a let's get back yeah. to. Okay, th there has been this culture. There's a relativism that yeah. the resource month guys in like the mid 20s and weren't, yeah. uh, you know, and then fragmentation, fragmentation yeah. of the theological yeah. guild. I want to go back to first then the relativism, mm -hmm. because it, it's it's very clear that the the early resource month guys very aware of modernist 
thinking, yeah. however you want to, and yeah. were opposed to much of it, yeah. nevertheless found their essential betonois in the neo-scholastic hegemony of yeah. things. And so they trained their guns primarily at the neo-Thomists and so forth that they believed were overreacting yeah. to the modernist crisis and, yeah. and, and so on. Now, that therefore gave them a, a very specific theological focus, which is why it, it evolved into yeah. very intricate debates about nature and grace, ecclesiology, Christology, and so yeah. on. But they did not, therefore, deal with what we have to deal with, which is this thoroughgoing cultural relativism. It was already beginning then, but they just they really maybe Guardini did a little bit, but they really didn't deal with it that much, did they? I think they deal with it. The only place where they real de deal with it is in opposing modernism. OK, because modernism represented a historical relativism. Yeah. Doctrines change. Therefore, all that matters is the experience behind them or some nonsense like that in the way that Tyrrell speaks. Um, but the way in which um, the ressourcement figures react to that is mainly by saying, no, we're not that. Right. And, and saying, yes, yes, you know, truth remains. Yes, yes. Um, and the, I think they're searching for ways to have a theology of history. And Daniel Liu comes close but perhaps it's only really in the younger generation of people dependent on those resource non theologians. Well, I, I think about the younger Ratzinger, who actually have a theology of history in which propositional truth can be passed on in different cultural periods. So the original resource non theologians, historical relativism, they say, no, no, we're not like that. But they're not really engaging seriously enough, I think, with how it's possible to have truth in a culturally relativistic age. Um, and that's something. That, yeah. That yeah. I mean, Balthazar, Balthazar has a theology of history, yeah. but in many ways it's, it's an extended meditation on a, a deep theological anthropology rooted in a Christocentrism. So yeah. it, it, it's kind of more an elaborate, his interpretation of history through the lens of this radical Christology, uh, this Christocentric Christology uh, uh, in view of history. Well, I think what what Balthazar and the young Ratzinger in his second dissertation on Bonaventure and history, what they share is a sense that there is there is the world's history. There is a sort of quasi secular history that you can trace. And there is also an inner meaning to history. There's an inner direction to the history. And the theologian needs to work with both. And that's really fruitful. Um, but I don't think that's been well developed or considered in recent times. It, it hasn't. And, may, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, this is just off the top of my head and I'm, as I'm sitting here listening to you. Uh, but it, it is a thought that I've had before that in developing their various theologies of, of history, from Daniel Liu through uh, Balthazar Ratzinger, a lot of them are, in a sense, dialoguing with philosophical idealism, Hegel uh, and yeah. people like this, or Marxist analysis yeah. of history, yeah. which was very prevalent in Europe yeah. at that time. You see this in Augusto del Noche's philosophy yeah. as well, this grappling with, with neo-Marxist uh, visions of history. But that is, that is still to impart to history a certain teleology. And, and therefore, yeah. the new resource, it seems to me, has to grapple with something different. I mean, yeah. if, if, if I mean, Hegel, who I mean, yeah. Marx, who I mean, the, the question now yeah. is a, a deep, deep, deep 
uh, sort of fragmentation of reason as such in a kind of technocratic digital paradigm. Yeah. No, no, we deal with the sort of dumbass version of uh, Fukuyama and the end of history. Um, yeah, in, right. There is no teleology because, I mean, it, it is fascinating and you're quite right, Larry. You look at all of those guys in mid 20th century, the alternative is Marxism. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. If you look at Balthazar's, uh, what is it, Communio, a program that he wrote when they launched Communio, it's all about it's the Communio of the church or it's communism. There's nothing in between. Yeah. Um, whereas we face something in some ways that's an outgrowth of that. Um, history is utterly chaotic. Uh, what matters is a vague sense of technological progress and a sort of depression that it might actually result in anything. That's, I think, all you get. Yeah, I mean, and to put it in a nutshell and somewhat vulgarly, I mean, the, the prevailing attitude, even among educated elites, seems to be you're born, some shit happens to you, then you die. And, and, yeah. and, and, and any attempt to put a veneer of meaning over that is nice if it comforts you, but yeah. don't don't have the illusion that it actually means anything. Uh, and even that humanity as such. And here's the difference between now and then. Even that humanity as such really matters, uh, yeah. you know, which is why in some ways I think the current emphasis in various circles on in Rome on the, fr the human fraternity and the great human project is like all things in the church, like 40 years behind the times yeah, yeah, yeah. when we, you've got large segments of our technocratic populace talking about AI and robotics and the singularity and the replacing of the human with with the cybernetic. Yeah. I mean, 20 years ago, it was dolphins and aren't dolphins smart and all the rest of it. And so we're all <laughs> part of the big ecosystem. And now yeah. it's AI and really we're just computers. But it's the same basic phenomenon of the decentralization of humanity. And I mean, it is interesting how... You know, and again, Ratzinger, Benedict always stood out for this, that there are certain philosophical truths that now have to be preserved theologically. Uh, the significance of history, the significance of human rationality. These are things that we have to preserve because nobody else is. Um, yeah. And, 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 and if we swap to what was going on at the conference, that was something that was pretty clear, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Ab yeah, absolutely. And yeah. if my friend Mark Stallman is listening to this, he's probably screaming at the, the, the TV screen. I've interviewed him on this show before saying that we need also to pay attention to shifts in technological paradigms. You know, yeah. that, that, that the, the Nouvelle Theologians, the resource mind guys, the mid 20th century are living in a kind of still a kind of print universe, an analog universe. Yeah. And we now live in a sort of computer universe of digital images. And, and that that's changed our consciousness to a great deal, made it more made it more fragmented, uh, made it more relativistic in many ways. It's it's hard to describe how a simple shift from print analog to simply a more digital paradigm would do that. But yeah. these are these are all parts of what's different today and what a new resource month theology yeah. is going to have to deal with. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, as a, an educator, um, you really realize that that more and more the undergrads coming in are unable to listen to a lecture. And that's not simply a skill they lack. It's because they look at the world fundamentally differently. Yes. They're constantly looking at things that are 30 seconds long and piecing them together in odd kaleidoscopic ways. It's it's a different way of relating to the world. And I feel well, I use computers, but I use them as a way of accessing print resources I don't have 
or writing stuff I'm going to print out. I mean, that's <laughs> I was going to say to this day, to this day, it's, it's now about half and half. But I mean, yeah. people, you know, I, I do a lot of writing, as you know, as do you and yeah. blogging. So I still tend to write things out longhand and then type them into my computer uh, simply because I write better if I'm writing it out by hand. But that would be unthinkable to to most modern people that they would do yeah. it that no, way. It has fundamentally changed. And I think that it, it's happened so quickly in some ways that people of our generation find it difficult to understand the change that has happened. Um, yeah, and, you know how we will reflect on that theologically. I don't really know. Um, I suspect those changes are more important than the great AI revolution, where we're all going to have computers who can be intelligent. And that seems to be that's often with a, said with a philosophical naivety that's quite frightening about what intelligence and consciousness is. But I, I st I'm still waiting for Bart Simpson's monkey butlers to aid me in my life. <laughs> Uh, so if, if you could develop an AI monkey butler, that would be good. But anyway, uh, that uh, most people probably don't even get that reference anymore. I do. From, yeah. from, <laughs> from the <laughs> Simpsons. Uh, but anyway, okay. So um, that, that in a sense is that this, this relativism and this fragmentation are, 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 are part of what the new resource month thinkers have to deal with. And, and that's in the realm of culture. But then let's let's turn our attention then. I mean, after all, we're talking about essentially theologians, but it involves Catholic thinkers across a broad spectrum, yeah. both literary and philosophical and poetic as well. Uh, uh, and actually, I think one, when we get into this, that, that perhaps one of the deficits of uh, resource month theology is that despite its protestations to the contrary, you know, that it needs to be different. It has been dominated by the by the theological guild. Uh, I mean, you look, for example, the idea of Communio, International Catholic Review. The idea wasn't that this is a theology journal. The idea was that it's theology, philosophy, literature, art, all, you know, history, all those. But it's, it's largely become a journal of theology and philosophical metaphysics. So as, as, we, as we look at the theological guild and what a new resource month has to deal with, what do you see as some of the challenges uh, before us in, in well, that regard? I, okay, that's a, it's a really good question. And I think that the biggest challenge is not actually a theoretical one, although there are theoretical challenges in terms of various theological questions. But the biggest challenge is the structure of professional education that theologians undergo. Um, the, so I might be interested at a theoretical level in making exegesis and theological reflection closely intertwined or making historical theology and what's called systematic theology, whatever the hell that is, making those things relate together. But that can happen in my head. But the reality is when someone is sent off to be trained at a, a, a good PhD program, it's very easy to become compartmentalized and take on a professional identity that makes yeah. those conversations, which surely are essential to good Catholic theology, nearly impossible. And you, what you see, I think, is a gen, younger people coming out with their PhDs. I do biblical studies and I have tried to fight against it and working out by themselves how to do it. So we're not actually training people to do Catholic theological thinking uh, well enough. Well, that's that's. That's very interesting um, because I, I've, I've had similar thoughts 
along the way as well that you know that a lot of this presumes a certain formation in a way of thinking in a catholic way and the question is in most university theology programs even if they have the the moniker catholic attached to them in some attenuated way uh, is it possible for a young theologian to rise up and develop within that system, within that system as such, and not as a form of resistance to it, within that system as such, where the church's tradition gets a fair hearing, where you are allowed to give it a broad and fair hearing? Is that possible in the modern Catholic academic guild in most standard sorts of places? Like where I went to school, Fordham, this is not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that there's a very small number of places where that's possible. There are some, but there will still be huge professional um, pressures so that if you're a biblical scholar, then you've got to know about this crap, not that crap. Um, So that you might be encouraged to do that, but there are still these professional pressures as well. And I think it's changing a little bit. I mean, I think that if you look, say, at the the newer set of people who teach at Boston College, I, I think that's slowly undergoing a really interesting shift, at least in some areas, compared yeah. to what it was even 15 years ago. Um, so, so there are certainly places, but they're really quite few in number. And I don't think very often their program structures have as an intention to do something different than the divisions and chaos we've had since the council. Yeah. You know, that requires thinking both at a theoretical and a highly practical level. So, okay, if you're going to be trained as a biblical scholar, you must also take this amount of coursework in patristics and this sort of course that's going to teach you about what Dave Verbum actually says. Um, those are the sorts of innovations I think you would need really to build different programs. And I'm not quite certain with that. And, and, I, and, I, and I like that because, I mean, what is needed in a new resource model, because that's the topic here today, is, is the development of some kind of movement that develops a synthetic picture of Catholic theology. That yeah, it's yeah. not just a grab bag of, oh, this is an interesting scholar, or oh, that, in, that guy's doing some interesting things, and here's another interesting person over here. That one of the things that really did characterize the Ressourcement movement of the 20th century, despite its sometimes eclecticism, was that there was a kind of coherent vision that was being articulated. And it was so coherent in some respects that it was able to evolve into a movement that then influenced the Second Vatican Council and important future popes like JP2 and Ratzinger. So it's a real thing. And so this is in the midst of the fragmentation that we now see in the theological guild. What my question then really is, what is the realistic possibility of a new synthesis emerging, not a monolithic groupthink, but some kind of common denominator way of approaching Catholic theology that is able to take root in a similar way? I I can't really see the answer to that yet. Yeah, me either. I mean, there's a lot of it's like at at, uh, the New Resource Mod Conference and a couple of other things like the Academy of Catholic Theology. I can see a group of people I talk to um, and we have really, you know, interesting, generative conversations. I don't think that we could easily articulate a common vision of, say, how we were going to deal with the theology of history, how we were going to deal with the tradition, other than a commitment to taking it seriously. 
It seems to yeah. me that there is a lot of work to be done for a generation or more to create out of the chaos a sense of, well, here is a coherent way of te teaching the tradition. I think it's one reason why there has been such a Thomist revival in the past 25 years. Okay, good, good. Go with that, because that's my next question. Yeah, but I mean, I, I in think in response really to this, a Thomist yeah. would say, well, why don't we just then, we yeah. have a standard theology in the church. This is Rusty Reno's argument. We've had a standard theology in the church. It's called Thomism, and we destroyed it. Why not just go back to that? Yeah, yeah. So, but I think you do find a whole host of really smart characters undertaking a new, more historically sensitive Thomism. Um, so um, we, we, I could list, you know, six or seven, eight, nine, ten num people. They're all under 60, I think. Um, and that's a real shift. Um, and I think it's a very much welcome shift. But I find when I'm in conversation with them, there's a common sense of we're on the same page. We need a we, we need a theological system. You know, we need to overcome the chaos so we can work together in quite close ways. But it's interesting how some of the old com conversations and competitions will immediately emerge. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you become a Thomist, you're quite likely to think that there's a basic genealogy, uh, forward movement to theology, which goes from the early church up to Thomas who arranges it all neatly and then there are interpreters of Thomas and then there's chaos and we can overcome it so you've got one figure uh yeah, yeah you know okay yeah. for the best of them it's Christ but um it's still Christ plus Thomas um and that creates yeah. a certain center to the theological world that for someone more patristically rooted like me is not quite the case although you know I have nothing against Thomas and I'm not the I wouldn't be a resource mom figure who ignores Thomas in the way that some resource mom figures do. Um, but there are some of those conversations re-emerging, and it's fascinating that the conversations that were there, say, in 1900, are still there in 21, whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that in the 21st century, we have to make a new attempt to approach those conversations, recognising that we now have common ground with Thomists, not simple opposition. Um, and to it, perhaps... it's, not, it's not surprising that there's been such a revival of Thomism. I think if you're a young theologian, you recognize you want a system out of the chaos. You know, Thomism that's historically sensitive is a pretty good option. Yeah, I was, just, I was just going to say, you know, I love Aquinas. I've read yeah. the Summa. Uh, studied the Summa. Uh, Hansuas von Balthasar quotes Aquinas more than any other author, which should give the lie to the idea that Balthasar and many resource month guys despised okay. Aquinas. Yeah. And even Henry de Lubac spent the, the majority of his career retrieving a particular view yeah, yeah. of Aquinas on nature and grace. He thought Aquinas yeah. important enough to, to really drill deeply down into what Aquinas thought of the relationship yeah, yeah. between nature and grace. The only modern resource month thinker who I, I can think of, who actually I think largely ignored Aquinas, shockingly, was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ratzinger has little to say, but Daniel Liu has very little to say. Right. Yeah. So you're uh, right, to, I think, to identify there are a couple of strands within yeah. 20th century resource month theology. Yeah that weren't so much anti-Thomas as they were saying there are other 
Yeah. There are yeah. other resources in the church to take a look at. And let's look at those. So Augustine yeah. and Bonaventure, for example. Of which, I, you know, one of the most interesting is Congar. I mean, before the, the older Congar went nutso, um, he's a really interesting model of someone who's very much a Thomist, but bringing on board, especially the Greek fathers and trying to construct something. Um, and I think yeah. that, that's, a better, that's a better model. Uh, Thomas, you know, he remains the angelic doctor. He's not someone that you can suddenly say, I'll manage without. That's dark. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think one can do theology in a Catholic tonality uh, that specializes in Augustine or Bonaventure or Gregory of Nyssa or Maximus the Confessor, and you don't deal with Aquinas that much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here and there, that's possible. And we need scholars like that. But overall, I think what we... As we see the Thomists and the and the racehorse monk guys come back together in this new racehorse monk, I think I think you put it correctly, Lewis. You know, it's a historically sensitive Thomism, uh, yeah. which I think we would call racehorse monk Thomism, yeah. which I think is is going to emerge a Thomism that is aware of its Augustinian and patristic roots. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think, think I, I mean ahead. I think that you know one of the best books on the nature grace stuff in the past. 20, 30 years is Jacob Wood's book. What's it called? To Stir a Restless Heart. Oh, I've got it. So historically focused and yet aware precisely of what the issues are. Um, you know, you can agree or not agree with his conclusions, but it's all, it's, uh, yeah, it's just an excellent book. Um, this is, oh boy, I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm about halfway through it. Yeah. I had to set it aside for a stupid yeah. conference I went to. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> That this is really it's not a stupid comments. I'm being pejorative. But anyway, yeah, great book. Great book. And so for those who are just interesting, those who are just listening, it's called To Stir a Restless Heart, Thomas Aquinas and Henry de Lubac on Nature, Grace and the Desire for God by Jacob Wood. And if I'm understanding Wood correctly, I mean, he comes down, I think, a little more in the direction of the Thomist interpretation of nature and grace than the Lubachian, but he still has this great appreciation for what de Lubach did. Yeah, I, I think he's got the appreciation for it, and it's done historically. And, it, you know, one of its subliminal messages to anyone who wants to waffle away about nature and grace, having read only what people have said in a third-hand way in the past 30 years, is stop it. You've got to do <laughs> this. If you, want to, yes. if you want to talk about this, yes. shut up, you know. Yes. This, this is where yeah. we go. You can disagree well, with me, but this is what, where we go. What the book does, and which is so great, and this is not a side tangent. This is absolutely yeah. critical and essential to our conversation yeah. today about the new resource month. Yeah. This is an old debate, and it's yeah. not a debate that simply resides in 20th century debates. It goes all the way back to the church yeah. fathers. It has yeah. bearing on all yeah, these yeah. soteriological with the Reformation and, and, you know, all this kind of this is a burning ongoing issue. Uh, this relationship between nature and grace. And so it, it deserves a retrieval. But what I like about Wood's book, and I think it's a model for how we move forward, is that it broadens the framework of the question. The question is now not so much, what did Aquinas say or not say about nature and grace? And then once we determine the answer to that, we're going to have our solution to the problem. No. What Wood does is he he frames the, his, well, what is, what is the broader yeah. theology of nature and grace. How does Aquinas nuance that? He was asking questions we're not asking. 
And we're asking Aquinas to answer questions that he wasn't asking. All right. But how did he nuance that question? How did De Lubach nuance that? And how should we now nuance that question? Because Aquinas could have been wrong about some things, just as De Lubach could have been wrong about. So what's the broader venue here? What are the questions in play and how do we how do we bring Aquinas and the resource Mont guys together to to answer that question? Am I right? Yeah, you're right. You usually are. Not always, but you're usually right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that's pretty good. So I think, you know, when people once we've got to a period where people can produce books like that, the possibilities for conversation over the tradition are radically different from what they were in, you know, the 1950s. Um, And they're also really fruitful for overcoming some of the nonsense that we've had for, you know, 50 years. So that's really good. But we haven't spoken about what was missing. Oh, yeah. Well, let's what time is it? OK, we're about 35 minutes in or 30 minutes into this. So we have a little bit of time. I don't know how much time you have. But let, yeah. So what is what is missing in, in resource month yeah. theology? Well, this is more what what was missing from the conference that we went to, which and it was a fairly wide sampling of people. There were a couple of people there who clearly were really Thomists, um, some people who clearly were not. And it was a really wide and interesting range of people um but i didn't feel that anyone spoke in an interesting way about liturgy right uh, church architecture people didn't speak about the great iconoclasm that's come upon us and that was for me really interesting um we you know i i don't want to get into the the particular liturgy wars um it seems to me that that's often a discussion which is very real for people, but you can lose a sense of what's fundamental in that discussion, which is, you know, what actually is liturgy and how yeah. might any reform of liturgy going backwards or forwards better make real the nature of liturgy for us. But it seems to me one of the goals of Ressourcement is not or was not just making the theological conversation amongst theologians better. Uh, But it was about what today we would call evangelizing. Uh, It was about trying to make Christian life more real and powerful in the context uh, of European cities that had swathes and swathes of unchurched people. It was about those sorts of questions as much as anything else. Um, and that's where, in some ways, liturgy and prayer and formation at the parish level are fundamental. So at a theological level, we need to find a way to talk about that as well. I agree. Uh, and uh, and obviously, there's going to be another one of these conferences next year yeah. with a new set of scholars. Uh, so maybe we can politely nudge our friends at Word on Fire yeah. in the direction of inviting some yeah. liturgical scholars, some experts in sacramental yeah, yeah. theology to to write about to 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 discuss liturgy, uh, because yeah, yeah. I, I, I was struck with that sort of absence as well, that there was no uh, broader discussion, especially since Word on Fire, you know, put such a premium on beauty yeah. and the importance yeah. of beauty in evangelization. And, and Bishop Barron is always talking about the need for beauty and liturgy, beauty and architecture and so on. And so, yeah, I, I think there really does need. I mean, 
I'm not going to say that. I was going to make a pejorative comment about a certain church, but I won't. I mean, there's just. There's a, <laughs> I there's was a just. It may be the same church because I was just running it through in my head and thinking, no, as don't say that. Keep quiet. So, yeah, there was a certain <laughs> church you and I were in. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and and uh, it, it was ugly. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't fetching in the slightest. Yeah. And, you know, you wouldn't walk in and feel the real presence and and and, and so on. And so, so much of our church architecture beginning, you know, one of the things, too, that comes out, and this is a side note that I think it's important to understand, is the Second Vatican Council, in some ways, accelerated a process that had already begun in terms of architecture. I mean, if you go back into whatever diocese you live in and look at some of the most ugly church in the round, fellowship hall, quasi-prosentized churches I know this is true in America and you will discover that they were built in the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. That, that yeah. this moved towards a kind of absolutely insipid. Now I think some of it had to do with economics that uh, these things became prohibitively expensive to build on the grandiose scales of our forefathers. Uh, and, and so functionality came to be a premium, but in other words, we're having a conversation right now that I wish we had had at yeah. the conference and that i yeah, think yeah, resource yeah. theology does yeah. need does need to take up yeah. this question of well, liturgy a, i mean the question of what range of things should we be discussing to enable a a liturgical movement to be part of a new resource mod? it's not simply a question about ad orientum or not a question about old mass right. new mass that's it's primarily a question about what is liturgy and how do we talk about it theologically? And there are some scholars in our day who are doing that, but that surely has to be a central part of our sort of vision for the church and for the next generation. And I don't yet see that happening. Um, no, I don't either. And, and uh, that's unfortunate because it's a burning issue in the church. Yeah. It's, it's an issue that is currently really dividing the church yeah. Uh, in, in, in fractious ways. And, and it's really, I mean, it's an issue, and I think you've already hinted at this. I mean, it's an issue that hits the laity right right in the streets. I mean, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. You know, 99% of the average lay person's experience of the Catholic faith is that 50 minutes they spend at a Sunday mass, you know, at their local parish. And if yep. that if that liturgy is dull, uninspiring in an ugly church with horrible homiletics and so forth, it's no wonder why we're hemorrhaging young people well, out of the church. Last Sunday, last Sunday, there I was at mass in another church, which is not the prettiest church in Christendom. We'll leave it there. Um, we had a pastoral letter from the bishop. OK, we have a new bishop. We had a pastoral letter. It spent 10 percent of its time talking about Christ the King. And then it went on about World Youth Day, the youth ministry team in the diocese and how they needed to raise some money um, for three quarters of the time. So I, I was sort of annoyed because I get annoyed at things. And my wife, who is much wiser than I, says, well, I just know how to tune this stuff out. And I don't really know how to tune it out. And I don't have that spiritual gift. But it was a perfect example of a liturgy ruined because it wasn't a unity. So people... Right were not encouraged to think about why the hell is it something called the Feast of Christ the King? The liturgy itself does a decent job of talking about that, but there was nothing to draw attention to that. That hadn't really been thought about. And I think that sort of thing happens 
because perfectly well-intentioned people, Bishop's not a bad guy, um, they're just not thinking about the liturgical context as the place where most people are being fed their faith on a weekly basis. You know, we've got to think about that. I think that's very true. And it's very sad. I mean, I'm like you, I, I don't have the virtue of being able to just sort of ignore these things. <laughs> and, and I'm usually flown into a, a white hot rage that I have to repress <laughs> when here in the United States, it's become standard practice when the bishop does the bishop's annual appeal for money, the pastor will wheel a, a big TV screen into the center aisle of the church <laughs> and plug in a, a DVD sent to him by the diocese, or, or maybe now just you access a web page from the yeah. diocese, you know, and so then you're regaled for 15 minutes with charts and graphs and beautiful images of little kids yeah. being fed at Catholic charities and so on. <laughs> And, you know, uh, my goodness, you just you want to just bang your head against the wall. And of course, priests are more than happy to do this because that means on that day they don't have to preach and they don't have no, to. Yeah, write a yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, they really need um, there's there's a good reason for going back to a system of nice having books of homilies. The priests can read out that are actually appropriate to the season. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, it's I a agree. Very good job that neither you nor I can be bishops, I think. <laughs> no, no, if, if don't, don't even make me bishop for a day because heads heads would roll. And I you talk about the deposition of bishops there. Yeah, there, I would be I would be despoiled of my office five minutes after I was there. There would be a movement to have me deposed almost immediately. But anyway, all joking aside. The, yeah. the fact is, yeah, there is this. I mean, we, I mean, we're not we're beating a dead horse here because most of the people who listen yeah. to this. My blog post are, are going to be very, yeah, yeah. very sympathetic to the view that the modern liturgy is banal. And 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 so the question then would be, and this is something resource month theology, uh, the new race needs to address is uh, this question that often comes up. Well, if the modern liturgy is banal, is it simply a question of better praxis, a better training, uh, more resources thrown into liturgical choirs and architecture and so on? Or is there some inherent flaw in the Mass of Paul VI that we need to reform? Yeah. So does there need to be a reform of the reform in a certain direction? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I hear people talk like that, and I still want to say that it's not quite getting to the nub of the problem if you think all it really needs is a tweaking of rubrics or whatever. Yeah, I think I think that it is. I mean, all of those things are real problems. And I, you know, deal with things in a fairly abstract level. And that's not not always a good thing. But it yeah. seems to me there is a fundamental theological discussion. You know, one of the other differences between the ressourcement thinkers of the 40s and 50s and our generation is that very few of those thinkers have a great deal in detail to say about liturgy. Balthazar um, had almost nothing to say. Exactly. They they have little bits to say. And I suspect that's because virtually all of them were religious. They were formed in dense liturgical contexts. They knew where they wanted reform. They knew what they were rejecting. They knew what they were getting. And their lives were formed liturgically in a way that's much less likely for lay people, however often, you know, we're present at mass and whatever offices we might say by ourselves. Um, and it didn't really occur to them, um, well, other than maybe Louis Bouillet. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's a volume of Congar's essays about liturgy, which say almost nothing. Um, but 
it seems to me that for our generation, if we're going to have a new resource model, we need to think about that at a fundamental theological level. We can think about what is revelation, what is truth, and how what is sacramentality, and how in creation are we led to talk about and to worship God? What sort of liturgy do we need for that? And on that basis, we can begin to approach these really yeah. important practical questions, but not without yeah. that. You see this, uh, a greater concern for liturgy, I think, in some of the second generation resource month guys. And I, I would consider Joseph Ratzinger to be a second yes, generation right. yeah. resource yeah. month guy. And he focuses on the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, he begins to understand post-Vatican II that something really not so great has happened to us yeah. liturgically. Yeah. And so, of course, he had his famous writings on the liturgy, which are deep and profound. And so, and to me, one of the greatest mysteries about the Benedict pontificate, among many mysteries of the Benedict pontificate, up to why he resigned, is, is the question of why he didn't do more in the liturgical area, since it, yeah. he was probably uniquely equipped among modern popes to do something about it. But yet, then you have another second generation resource monk guy, Carol Wojtyla, when he was mm -hmm. pope, clearly didn't didn't care that much about liturgy at all. No, no, he was perfectly happy wandering around in his chiffon tablecloth doing his stuff and evangelizing people. I I mean, I think with I was doing a lecture in uh, Edinburgh University last week for the Thomistic <laughs> Institute um, about the legacy of Benedict. And, and I brought up the question of liturgy and I said, for me, it's one of the ways in which you can see him as a person in between times. Yeah. Um, he Bingo. understands the problem with real penetration, but he doesn't really know what to do about it. And I think he's perfectly honest when he says, you know, I don't feel that I can just say, OK, sorry, guys, ad orientem, it makes sense. Because what he's troubled by is the constant turmoil. Yes, um, the change, the plasticity yeah. of it all. Yeah. So how, yeah, do you, I mean, how do you reverse the constant stupid plasticity by changing some more. And I think he's just caught by it and doesn't really know what to do. So he um, did. I mean, we did get new translations of the liturgy under yeah, Benedict. Which was good. And, you know. We got we got Sumorum Pontificum, which has been overturned. But we also now have what I attend. We get the Anglican yeah. Ordinariate Liturgy. So it's it's wrong to say he didn't do anything. But I, I agree with you. I always thought he should have done more. Like, well, why didn't he simply, why didn't he start practicing ad orientum liturgy at the Vatican and all Vatican ceremonies and council, all bishops and so yeah. on. Why, why not in Summarum Pontifican also say, I hereby grant to all priests all over the world the right to do ad orientum worship, regardless of what your bishop says and so on. <laughs> why not? I mean, why not write an encyclical setting out from scratch right. what Christian liturgy is? And he's probably the only pope in however long who could do that by himself. And I think the and I think you nailed it. I think the reason why he didn't was because mm -hmm. he felt a certain paralysis, a yeah. certain well, you know, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. Yeah. You know, we we've got so I think the the goal of Sumorum Pontificum and the Anglican Ordinariates was that I think that he hoped that those liturgies would catch on enough that eventually there would be a movement. Yeah, yeah to allow that to cross fertilize over until reform of, of the Novus Ordo liturgy and so on. So I think he wanted it to happen gradually by a kind of osmosis, so forth. But of course, that didn't happen. Um, I remember going in 
2010, um, when uh, Benedict came to Britain for the Newman beatification and going to Birmingham for the big open air mass in the rain, what can you expect, um, for beatifying <laughs> Newman and sitting there for the you know hour and a half beforehand, waiting for it to happen. And on the huge projector screens, there are people with guitars and there's loads of teenagers and the usual sort of, oh, God, I'm going to have to sit through this, but the magic will eventually happen. And then Benedict appeared and it sort of switched off like that. And suddenly you have this little old priest chanting <laughs> and saying mass properly, but surrounded right. by the apparatus of chaos. Um, <laughs> it was... It, it was really interesting to see the performance. You know, you you were drawn to him because he knew what he was doing. But you he, he looked, it was almost a sort of symbol of his pontificate in liturgical terms. There's him at the centre doing the right yeah. thing. And around him, the nonsense continues. Uh, uh, well, there's another thing to change topics yeah. uh, before we run out of time. Talking about things that are missing. Uh, one of the things that was missing, of course, uh, uh, in terms of our conversation in Rochester was any discussion of liturgy and so on. But there's another burning issue that's out there right now that I think the new resource month theologians are going to have to deal with. And it's not something any of the first or second generation resource month guys had to deal with, which is the crisis of authority and in and, 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 and the church today precipitated by for for rightly or wrongly about with regard to perceptions uh, you know, that have coalesced around Pope Francis. And, and, and so my point in this is that is that there is, I think, an ongoing and this has ecumenical implications as well, especially with the East. I think one of the benefits of the Francis papacy, if you can call it this, is that it is it's opened up a certain wound in the church that was always there festering yeah. beneath the surface, which is what is what is the proper authority of the Pope? What are its limits? Can a Pope ever be wrong? Is it ever right to criticize a Pope? Um, you know, and so on. And and I think and I think this is a great gift to the church that a new resourcement theology could begin to articulate what is the relationship between power and authority in the church? What are yeah. the distinctions? I, one ahead. of the things that a couple of my uh, Orthodox friends would say about this, and I think they're quite right, is to say that, yeah, you're right. Pope Francis especially has opened up this discussion. So, um, and it festered away under JP2 and Benedict, exactly the same discussion. What's the authority yeah. of the Pope? What gets lost in that, which is an essential component, is what's the authority of the tradition and why? Yes. Um, um, and I don't think that we could, it would be useful simply to set out a legalistic discussion of what is the authority of the Pope or even a recovery of theological notes to say how, how should one assent to papal teaching even if it's not infallible until we first have a clearer sense of what is our commitment to, to tradition? Why is tradition given to us by God? How do we discern what's in it? Uh, that's something that I think that reflecting on debate with the East can be really important to us. Um, that the magisterium of the church fits within a vision of tradition and is not simply an arbitrarily exercised authority for the sake of annoying people. But we've sort of lost a clear <laughs> sense of 
of yeah. tradition. Um, and I think the part of that, again, goes back to somewhere, something that I began with. It's the distinction between sort of modern theology and historical theology, as if that's the preliminary that you do before you say the interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've really got to think about our theology of tradition and how we we exist within it and live because of it. Then we can start talking about our attitude towards contemporary church authority. I could not agree more. And I also think that there are certain thinkers like a, a Ratzinger slash Benedict, who, when you read his writings, wants to embed papal authority in precisely the categories that you describe. But I also think that he felt a bit, once again, a bit hamstrung yeah. by by the definitions of the First Vatican Council. All right. Yeah. That, you know, that do tend to seem to raise the pope above all of that right? Uh, to a sort of oracle on the Tiber. Although, on the other hand, one could read the First Vatican Council as an attempt to counsel precisely against such a notion. That the Pope. I mean, in other words, that Vatican I's definition was meant in some ways to really circumscribe yeah. the conditions of papal infallibility rather than to inflate the conditions yeah. of papal. No, I think that I think that's fair. But it, and it's interesting how much that's still a neuralgic discussion at Vatican II. So, you know, what Lumen Gentium says about bishops has to have the little note attached to the end of Lumen Gentium. Yeah, the, prima, the last in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just in case anyone gets worried, um, <laughs> we're still de we're still dealing with that. But it seems to me the relative authority of uh, of the episcopacy versus the papacy depends on a prior issue, which is the vitality of tradition as the life of the church and something to which we owe. Oh yeah, maintained uh, uh, by visible one the, signs. One of the greatest theologians at the council who was head of theological commission, Monsignor Phillips, uh, you know, says in, in his, you know, discussion, his memoirs of Vatican II, that had that little note at the end of Lumen Gentium not been included, hmm. that more than likely that Lumen Gentium would never have come about. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that it would have created too much dissent. So it, it's a document which ends with opening yeah. up a notion of Episcopal ecclesiology. Yeah. And, and Phillips believes that the doc, the doctrine of Episcopal collegiality, the, that the, the, the munera of a bit, the functions of a bishop yeah, yeah, yeah. governing sanctifying teaching come from God by virtue of the ordination yeah. and not is delegated by the Pope. Yeah. That that is the greatest achievement in Phillips view of the second Vatican council. I think so you get the a note really of, important one. Yeah. Yeah. And you get the note of previa at the end, which then in yeah. a sense, throws the question back open. It doesn't yeah. say, well, forget collegiality, but then it says, yes, collegiality, but always cum petro, sub petro, yeah, in yeah. a way that then just throws the everything right back in. Yeah. So no, the point really, being, yeah. Lumen Gentium has all of these resources that we can mine, yeah. but it still left the question open. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's an ongoing discussion. And I, so I would throw out to you in terms of a new resource mod, how yeah. important in the development of a new resource month theology of the relationship of papal authority vis-a-vis -vis the tradition and how it's embedded in that tradition. Yeah, yeah. How important then are notions of tradition that one sees, say, in Newman and in Blondell, Moeller, Tuming in school, these sorts of things? Well, I think they're vital. I mean, I think that uh, they're still the most important contributions 
to the theology of tradition. Nobody did anything. Nobody's really written anything that significant since uh, Congar's two volumes, which are really an attempt to to sort of theologize some of Newman's insights and analogies and and metaphors. I think is one way of looking at them. Um, and we need more work on that. Um, I mean, interesting in terms of what you said, if there's someone listening to this podcast who's a graduate student who shouldn't be listening to this because they should be getting on with some work <laughs> and they're thinking to themselves, what the hell am I going to do for a dissertation? And I want to do modern stuff. Then writing a dissertation about the contribution of Phillips in English would be really interesting um, because yeah. he's the understudied voice. Uh, at Vatican II. I, I know think. a couple of people that are working on a hermeneutic of, as their doctoral dissertation, a hermeneutic of tradition from within race source month theology. Yeah. Oh, that's gosh, the, it's urgent. I mean, that really is urgent, I think. It's um, a very, very urgent thing that needs to be done. Have you read David Bentley Hart's recent book on, on tradition? I mean, this is just by way of a complete yeah. sideline. Yeah. Have you read it? I mean, David is one of the smartest people that I've ever met. But he does seem to be busy talking himself out of Christianity in a very uh, intellectually uh, interesting way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the problem, the problem is one that's as old as the second century. Um, yes, Christian doctrines um, demand interpretation. Scripture has higher meanings which can be discovered. But one of the things about Christianity is that it's a faith which can be passed on to the millions. Yeah. Okay. A doctrine of yeah. tradition has to be something which passes on a simple faith, which people can stand up on a Sunday morning at mass and say, I believe in and have confidence that they can say that. And they're right. speaking the truth. Right. And I think that um, the problem with David's vision of tradition or some of the other recent books is that tradition resides in endless change towards the eschaton, in which case it ain't nothing. Um, yeah. Right. It's salvation by PhD alone at that point. Um <laughs> and I think there's a, you know, there's a serious problem. So, oh my God, I can I can I borrow that line with attribution, of course, salvation by PhD, yeah, yeah. copyright, yeah, salvation but, I mean, by PhD. And I, by by the, by the way, caveat: I know David Hart. I like David. I mean, I, we, we're not exactly chums or friends, but we've met, we've yeah. been at conference, we've conversed, we've emailed. I've interviewed him on my yeah. show here. I like, but I think he's wrong about tradition. I think he's very wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, and it is I think his book, the little book, The Doors of the Sea, was the best thing he's ever written. That was just beautiful. I think the thing about tradition is deeply problematic, um, partly yeah. because it doesn't seem to allow for a tradition in which propositional truth is passed down from one generation to another and is repeatable by people in church and that they're speaking the truth. It doesn't require a great level of understanding. That is actually one of the things that tradition well, does. And I, I would also say this. If we see tr the traditioning process as in some ways similar to the traditioning process that created the scriptures, yeah. uh, the fact is David wants to say, and others in that school, there is no Ariadne's thread that runs yeah. throughout yeah. throughout the tradition. This is something that we read back into the tradition retrospectively. And of course, the implication is illegitimately uh, the winners write history and, and yeah. but you really can't find this in the sources. And so but if you look, for example, at, at the processes by which we got the Old Testament, yeah. OK, by the time you get to the wisdom literature, you yeah. are seeing 
and you see this, and this is the advantage of historical critical tools and so yeah. forth when properly used, you are seeing the manner in which very ancient Jewish literature, whether it's law literature or mythopoesis, is worked and reworked and reworked and reworked through various levels of interpretation in the Jewish hermeneutic tradition, which ends up being scripture. Uh, and and I don't believe, therefore, that that was simply later rabbinic authors retrojecting under the scriptures a false view. It's it's part of the traditioning process as such that that kind of yeah. that kind of appropriation no, of tradition you, takes you place. Can, I think you can certainly trace Ariadne's thread there in a historically sensitive way that's entirely yeah. plausible. Okay. If we're talking at the level of the secular historian, I can't demonstrate to you that it's the necessary way of telling that story, but it's utterly plausible and rational to do so. And we believe that that's the right story. Um, but it is. We believe that the Holy Spirit was guiding that story. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, mean, I yeah. think that that's it's just not convincing. Um, well, OK, well, let's not end there. I mean, so we've identified two things missing. You yeah. brought up on liturgy. I brought up one, yeah. the relationship of authority with tradition. And and, and yeah. this is an ongoing project that in ecclesiology that that has to be a common. Maybe those two projects are not unrelated. Yeah. Um, in, uh, I mean, as some of the traditionalists would argue, like uh, Dr. Kwasniewski and others, my chum, Lex Orandi, he's crazy, but I, I like the guy for some reason. Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, you know, yeah. that that there is something to be said for the fact that liturgy is part of the traditioning process that we simply can't treat as a tinker toy. No, uh, that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and that we have to pay attention to that theologically and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have strong, strong disagreements with Dr. K, but uh, we, we, we get along. We get on. We get on. All right. Uh, any last Irene words, person, Larry? Any? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, you know, my last word is to celebrate the ironic personages that is Larry Chap, really. Um, <laughs> being on. See, this show. is the great thing that people don't know about me is how it deeply, is. how deeply ironic and cordial yeah, I yeah. am. <laughs> no, the good, the good thing about you, unlike uh, many people on that side of the Atlantic, is you appreciate a good bit of sarcasm, and that was what I always liked about my years in the South. Um, Oh, yeah. The importance yeah. of sarcasm as a mode of communication. I think it needs an encyclical myself. Um, well, and that well, we, we need maybe a, good, a synod, but, even. But here and I'll end with this. Yeah. Uh, maybe in, in the discussion of New Resource Month on, you know, on the question of traditioning authority, yeah. I'll just say, I hope the next pope and we had this discussion. We had this in Rochester. I hope the next pope doesn't write a single encyclical, doesn't make a single trip yeah. outside of Rome, is yeah. an Italian who just yeah. wants to run the Diocese of Rome properly yeah. and then has to address certain questions yeah. with regard it's to the fairly aged. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah but a lives, lives a like Leo XIII, survives a remarkably not long number of years and hates traveling, just hates it. Um, yeah. I think, you yeah. know, the biggest problems with the papacy in the modern world are not canonical problems, but the 24-hour news cycle and the desire to hop on the bandwagon. That's... You know, there was this... Wonderful publication that emerged in the middle part of the 20th century that showed up in libraries of Catholic schools and universities everywhere. I don't know if it's true in the UK. It was true. It was called The Pope Speaks. And <laughs> remember that? And it was just a collection of every speech, every offhand, everything that yeah. the Pope had said 
over yeah. the course of that year was placed in this little booklet. And, you know, yeah, yeah. this is what the Pope said this year and yeah. um, volumes of that stuff. So hopefully there won't be that much in the future. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Hey, Lewis, thank you very much yeah. for thank coming. You, Larry. Always. It's always fun. Thank you to all of my viewers. And uh, we'll have some more conversations next week with some new guests coming up. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks. Bye.